This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased to have with us Professor Lorenz Luti. Professor Luti is a professor of history at McGill University. Uh, he is the author of the very well-known and received book, The Sino-Soviet Split. And today we are speaking about his newest book, Cold Wars, Asia, the Middle East, Europe. Welcome, Professor Luthi. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this podcast. Professor, what what um, may you say would be the thesis of your book? There are several theses in this book. It's a long book, you know, 750 pages. So what the main thesis is that we really have to move away our exclusive focus from the superpowers and the great powers in the 20th century and try to understand how middle and smaller powers act and how their, their actions individually and collectively have an impact on structural change over time. Can you describe a little bit the, um, uh, the unusual structure of the book in terms of uh, how you situate the different geographical locations in the context of the Cold War? Yeah, and as the title already reveals, I have Asia first, then the Middle East, and then Europe. And um, the title itself has several provocations. So I talk about Cold Wars, for example, not about the Cold War. And the geographical sequence has something to do with my discomfort about the very Eurocentric interpretation of many of the previous works on general interpretations of the Cold War. Um, of course, in Europe is important, but I was particularly interested from the very beginning about how different continents relate to each other in horizontal ways and not only in vertical ways to the superpowers. And uh, what I realized doing research is that really influence moves very much from east to west. Things that happen in Asia have an influence on uh, events in the Middle East and Europe. And, you know, I can give you a, a very good example, the Korean War, which was a local event, this was really about Korean affairs, it had a major impact on the Chinese Revolution, on Vietnam, on South Asia, uh, on the Middle East, and particularly on Europe, the way, you know, the division of Europe was deepened as a result of the Korean War, which again was a, a local conflict, really shows how influence flows from East to West. So it would be correct, in essence, to say that uh, you give agencies uh, to countries and regions in the world which ordinarily in other treatments do not um, uh, receive the same 
Would that be correct? Yes. So it is to a certain degree a, 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 a critique of these previous works, and it is not. I, I don't claim that authors were blind or uh, had ill will, but this is also a historical. Uh, there are historical reasons. We, uh, for a very very long time, Cold War historians worked with American and then European sources because other sources were not accessible, and of course this then shaped the way they looked actually at the Cold War as a global phenomenon. So, um, uh, to bring up one uh, aspect of it, um, of your, uh, for lack of a better expression, I, su I suppose you could say, although I, you do not use this term in the book at all, revisionist um, uh, view of uh, this period in history, um, you write that um, uh, in, in mid-1947, it was uh, Stalin who was responding to American economic and military commitments to uh, non-communist Europe, which had the de facto result of uh, division of the continent. Um, uh, that is a little bit uh, contra to uh, writers like uh, Wojciech Masne or, or um, John Lewis Gaddis. Um, why, why do you uh, posit that particular uh, sequence? Um, this is also a little bit, uh, um, you know, due to my own history, how I've developed as a historian over the last 30 years. I, study, I started to study in 1990, I just realized, 30 years ago. And at that time, the interpretation was largely that, um, you know, it was Stalin pushing, actually, for the division of Europe. And uh, my own advisor, John Gaddis, was very much related to this, uh, this view. He worked mostly on American sources and saw how the Americans reacted uh, in these sources. Uh, Wojtek Masny also belongs to an, uh, to an older generation. He's a very senior historian and um, uh, was one of the first to look at the, uh, at the documents in the 90s. And uh, I think maybe with a certain lens also. Uh, and then I taught for almost 20 years the Cold War. And the longer I reflected on this, um, I started to see Stalin actually as a world revolutionary, but one that acts very cautiously in many respects. And that uh, after 1944-45, he definitely had his interests in East Europe. He wanted to certainly dominate East Europe, but it was a chaotic place to begin with as a result of the war. Uh, and he lacked the, the human and economic resources really to impose rule. But the, the general disagreements that emerge between the superpowers then lead the Americans to read into Soviet actions a, gr a great design to which they had to react. And so by 1947, these commitments actually happen in the form of the Truman Doctrine, in the form of the Marshall Plan, the May Crisis, forcing the Italians and Italian and the French governments to actually expel communist ministers, moves in Germany towards creating a buy zone, uh, which happens on January 1st, 1948. So these are really 1947, the United States starts to make coherent steps to uh, and makes commitments to West Europe. And it's the coherence of these steps that, uh, that leads actually to the, the division of Europe. 
So Stalin, of course, tries to react to that. He tries actually to uh, to um, spoil these attempts, um, particularly noteworthy are his reactions to, of course, the Paris talks about the Marshall Plan in July 47. But he realizes that uh, the Americans are now really uh, dedicated to, to going through with their plans. And that forces him to react. And in 47, 48, uh, at the turn of the year, is very much now uh, uh, Stalin's imposition of much closer and more direct rule on East Europe. And a particular good example is, of course, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia's refusal to submit and then the expulsion of, uh, of Yugoslavia from the socialist camp by 48. So you would, in fact, give Stalin some agency in the gradual or not so gradual Sovietization of East Central Europe after 1947? Yes. Uh, I think this is where Stalin really... Um, takes the reins and, you know, keeps them very, very closely. That doesn't mean that Stalin doesn't have agency between, let's say, 44 when his troops march into East Europe, uh, Soviet troops march into East Europe and 47. Um, but again, this period, 44 to 47, is one of, you know, chaos and lack of coherence. And I tried to explain this in one of the chapters on the Council of Mutual uh, Economic uh, Assistance, that um, much of Soviet activities, agency is uncoordinated, contradictory, uh, happens on the ground by Stalin's lieutenants. I mean, of course, they act in what they believe is what Stalin wants, and they, they occasionally check back with him. And they're off the Stalinist mold. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be, be there in the first place. But there is a lack of coherence. Um, there is a general idea that we will introduce Soviet-style communism here, but it, it, it doesn't really, you know, follow a clear blueprint. That really changes, in my view, in the second half of '47. Why didn't Stalin invade Yugoslavia circa 1949? So you mean in the in the uh, in the wake of actually Yugoslavia's expulsion from 1948, right, and the the third. Common Foreign Congress. Yes. Um, you know, this is sort of, of course, what you probably have in mind is what is happening uh, later in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, um, less so East Germany is a special case. Uh, first of all, um, Yugoslavia doesn't border the Soviet Union, so um, it's really difficult to actually invade. You have to go through, uh, uh, through Bulgaria, Hungary. Uh, there are no troops like in East Germany that could be used as they were in 53 to suppress actually the uprising. So there's just some infrastructural problems. Um, uh, Tito is also very good at guerrilla warfare. He has proven that. So that might have deterred Stalin. I mean, I'm speculating here. Um, but there's also the other thing is Stalin tries to have actually Tito assassinated. He's the, he believes that Tito is the problem, not the Yugoslav party, right? So if you get rid of Tito, you know, everything will uh, will be back actually where it was supposed to be and Yugoslavia will submit again, right? And ultimately by then, Yugoslavia is turning to the United States and there are already the first feelers and, uh, you know, real military aid only flows uh, after the start of the Korean War. But, you know, that would have meant any invasion of Yugoslavia probably would have meant 
conflict with the United States. And as we know from the Berlin crisis, 48 to 49, Stalin feared conflict with the United States. Um, so there might have been sufficient reasons for him to be deterred from an invasion of Yugoslavia. Why was uh, Berea arrested in uh, the spring of 1953? So he was arrested actually in early summer. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm relying here on research done by other people. The book is not centrally about the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, but the, the arrest of Berea, of course, plays a role in, in the East German story. This has something to do with succession to Stalin. Uh, Stalin dies rather unexpectedly in, in, in March. I mean, he was aging, but he had this, uh, 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 this incident March 1st. And uh, there's good evidence that his uh, fellow leaders let him die, that they didn't call uh, doctors for 48 hours until it was too late. And then the question is, who succeeds actually Stalin? And Beria really had the best cards in his hands, and he de facto seized power. He was in, uh, uh, in charge of the Secret Service, of the Nuclear Weapons Project. He was a ruthless man. I mean, many of his colleagues were ruthless too, of course, but he sort of really played in a class by, by himself in this group. Uh, he was generally feared. And one of the reasons why uh, um, his uh, rivals, uh, Khrushchev uh, and uh, Malenkov and all the others, decided to move against him because they were simply afraid to have a second Stalin. Um, they were, some of them were already in the last years of Stalin's uh, life, were on the list of being actually arrested, like Molotov. So they all had an interest to break with, you know, yet another Stalin. And uh, the arrest is really a very risky affair. They basically show up in his uh, Kremlin office with armed guards. They have to disarm, actually, various guards, and they have to arrest him. This was a, a rather daring, actually, a, a pursuit. And the reason is really that uh, they saw Beria as a danger to their own survival, physical survival, and uh, and and future. Of course, they could use the uprising in uh, in Berlin as a pretext. So, um, Beria, to a certain degree, was implicated in uh, in pushing the East Germans to uh, walk back some of the radical reforms, which then sparked actually the uprising in mid-June. Um, but it was still a very risky uh, undertaking, and it was largely done to really protect uh, themselves, right? Um, of course, what they didn't uh, realize that Khrushchev himself had uh, plans to become the top leader, but he never was really a Stalin in terms of, of the, the blood that uh, Stalin's rule actually you know, produced. Would it be correct to say that you agree with Geir Lundstad's um, empire by invitation concept in terms of uh, American uh, hegemony in Western Europe in this time frame? Yes, I, I'm very much indebted to him. Uh, when I read it this, uh, for the first time, and this is, I think, in the 1990s or early 2000s, uh, increasingly, yes, this is exactly uh, what I so unconsciously felt. I grew up in Switzerland in the Cold War with a German mother and an American father who, despite uh, American missteps in Vietnam, you know, were very, very pro-American. 
Uh, and despite being social democrats, both of them, they were very pro-American. Uh, they said, despite all the mistakes the Americans made you know, in the 60s and 70s, we are deeply grateful to American commitments to West Europe. So I was, I grew up in this mold of, you know, we welcome American actually dominance. Right? And that wasn't really the kind of, of history I had seen when I started to study. And then Gaia Lundestad says, and it's about, and, and he really topples revisionist arguments that this is about an American, general American strategy of imposing dominance for economic exploitation, now crudely portrayed. And, you know, and it made perfectly sense to me that, uh, that Europeans would invite actually American dominance by uh, 46, 47, that they would address Americans and would say, we need you, right? We need you as, as our hegemon, because the alternative is that we become actually a part of the Soviet empire. And what I'm so stunned is that um, I think the West Europeans got it right. Uh, the, the documentation we have from Moscow throughout the entire uh, Cold War until I think 88 when finally Gorbachev gave up on this idea is that the Soviet Union did seek dominance in all of Europe and that the United that the Soviet Union tried to remove first American uh, influence before 47 and then remove American physical presence from West Europe after 1947. Moving to the non-European world, um, you seem to argue that the Lin Biao affair of 1970-1971 was connected with Mao's decision to open relations with the U.S. at that time. What is the connection exactly? Now, uh, Lin Biao was Mao's appointed successor. Uh, he was the editor, formerly the editor of the Little Red Book, so um, he had massively benefited from the Cultural Revolution. So um, he was really about to inherit the mantle from Mao. He was slated to do that. And by, I think, 1969, uh, the fall of 1969 and then throughout 1970, it's quite clear that uh, Mao Zedong is interested at, you know, signaling and then reaching out to the United States. Um, this, of course, undercut to a certain degree the credibility of Lin Biao. And uh, the, the whole affair is still very murky what happens, but it's, hap uh, it's essentially second half of July and then into August, um, just in the wake of Kissinger's uh, famous secret visit, and then the announcement that uh, um, Nixon would visit in, in China in February 1972. And both of this was, I think, the announcement this happened in July 19th, if I remember correctly, 1979. This must have led to some form of conflict between Lin Biao or Mao, and Lin Biao and Mao. We don't know the details. There's a lot, a lot of propaganda going on, and uh, there are charges against Lin Biao that he planned actually to overthrow Mao, that this uh, coup was discovered before it could be happened, and that he then flees actually in, uh, in an airplane to the Soviet Union. He has very little alternatives, right? That's the only one he has. And in fact, the airplane crashes in, in Mongolia, and he dies in his crash. We know now that it actually crashed because a friend of mine uh, Professor Sergei Rajenko in the UK found 
the, 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 the crash report in the Mongolian archives. So it, it crashes because it flies low to evade uh, Chinese pursuers and the Mongolian anti-aircraft uh, defense. And it's a relatively hilly uh, uh, landscape and it essentially crashes into one of these low hills and uh, more or less burns up. Um, so that's sort of the story. And this to a certain relieves, of course, more from internal pressure uh, against an, an, a further opening to the United States. Now, one of the rationales from the American perspective or side to uh, reestablish relations, uh, I should say actually establish relations with the PRC, was uh, the hope that there would be concrete Chinese assistance with ending the Vietnam War. Uh, in retrospect, was any such assistance given in terms of pressuring uh, Hanoi to make concessions to the Americans in order to settle the war on a quicker basis? Um, in the in the in narrow terms, as you know, uh, the Chinese pressured the Vietnamese because Nixon asked them to do so. Nothing happened. So, but in a wider sense, there was an alignment of interests between China and the, and the United States, and um, China acted accordingly. Let me explain this quickly. Um, originally, Nixon wanted an opening towards China for global reasons, and he writes this in '67 in his famous uh, Foreign Affairs um, uh, article, Beyond Vietnam. Uh, arguing that the United States must engage with actually India and China, the two most populous nations at the time already, and in particular China, it would be very useful to engage because it cannot be excluded and nurturing its radical ideologies, that it has to be integrated and tamed in, in the process. Um, it's Once he's in power, uh, Nixon's uh, view on their approach with China becomes really narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And it's really, when you look at January 1972, as he is about to go to Beijing, it's really, I hope that the Chinese help us uh, to get out of Vietnam. And as he flies to Beijing, he actually realizes this is not going to happen. The Chinese very clearly tell the Americans, we are not going to betray our North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese comrades. Uh, they have um, a good cause and it's the Americans and they have to get out. Uh, that's the only solution. And in fact, China can, uh, increased its military aid to, to Vietnam in 71, 72 in the context of Sino-American relations. However, that doesn't mean that at the same time the Chinese didn't do things in their relationships with the Vietnamese that actually did serve American aims. The problem here is the Vietnamese communists. They had, since probably the mid-1960s, they pursued a maximalist agenda. They not only wanted to reunify Vietnam, but in the process of reunifying Vietnam, they wanted actually to humiliate the United States on the battlefield in Vietnam and in extension, actually, in the, in the global arena to further actually the world revolution. It's really a maximalist agenda. And so um, in negotiations since May 1968 in Paris, uh, Vietnam didn't move. 
basically demanded concessions from the Americans. You have to withdraw unconditionally and in a process you have to take down the so-called puppet regime in the South. Um, I disagree that this was a puppet regime. It was very much an, a non-communist nationalist regime in the South. Um, the Chinese, since actually six, late 68, told the Vietnamese, let the Americans go first. They are not going to come back. Once they're gone, let them go, let them withdraw, wait a little bit, take over the South. And that's their consistent narrative to the, to the Vietnamese. And that's also what John Lai says after Nixon's visit in February 1972. He travels to Hanoi immediately to calm the nerve stands and we're not betraying you. But it's just not realistic to humiliate the Americans in the battlefield. It's not going to happen. It's better let them withdraw, wait, take over the South. That means you're not going to humiliate the Americans, which is what you want to do, but you get at least unification. The Vietnamese don't listen to that, and they, st they, they launch the East Offensive in a last-ditch attempt to humiliate the Americans on the battlefield. It doesn't work out, and by the fall 1972, they, they realize they have to make the concessions in the Paris negotiations in view of Nixon's expected uh, presidential election victory. So you see there as an alignment of, of argument. The Chinese wanted the Americans to withdraw because they thought that's the most feasible way, but they didn't want, they didn't counsel the, the Vietnamese to do that because Nixon asked them to do so. They had come to that conclusion by themselves for other reasons. This is a long answer to a very short question, I understand. It's uh, actually very apropos. So my, my second question related to the same is, um, I, is it correct to say that uh, the Chinese did not, however, suspend or curtail in any way their delivery of uh, military supplies to Hanoi? Um, they actually increased them in 71 and 72, but there was a decrease after 68. So the, the Chinese were particularly crucial in providing military and economic aid from roughly 1950 um, to actually 1968. And the reason why there is a, a decrease after 68, it's multiple, uh, it's, there are several reasons. One is there's initially a disagreement between Mao and the Vietnamese um, uh, leadership about whether or not to negotiate in the spring of 68. Uh, Mao swings support behind negotiations in late 68. Um, but in between spring and December, November 68, I think, um, the relationship is very bad and the, um, the Chinese decide actually to, to withdraw, first of all, the anti-aircraft troops from North Vietnam and also to curtail um, their military aid. And then after late 68, as the uh, Paris negotiations are underway, uh, I think the, the, the Chinese leadership also realized that maybe, you know, there's a negotiating, negotiated solution in the cards. Uh, of course, this wasn't the case because of Vietnamese resistance to that solution. So there was this idea that maybe we don't have to, to provide military aid. The military aid that then came back in in 71, 72 came back in also to calm Vietnamese nerves in the context of Sino-American approachment and say, look, we are still committed to you. We are not selling you out. And we prove that by providing you with additional military aid. 
So in retrospect, it could be argued that uh, from the American, looking at American policy, that American policymakers, particularly Kissinger and Nixon, suffered from a misunderstanding of uh, the fact that Hanoi had its own agency vis-a-vis Moskva and uh, Peking, Beijing. Yes. Um, and that uh, they, these two powers, given the fact of the split, were not in a position to exercise the type of pressure on Hanoi that was exercised at the Geneva Conference of 1954. Mm. I think this is correct um, at several levels. Um, first of all, the Vietnamese communists, uh, the link with the Chinese communists and the Comintern was always exclusively Ho Chi Minh. Um, and the rest of the Vietnamese party was actually an, uh, essentially a Vietnamese party with very little actually foreign experience that had uh, fought and had survived. Um, it had to make major concessions under Soviet and Chinese pressure in '54. Um, that was a lesson uh, that uh, you know you don't rely actually too much on outsiders. Uh, in the wake by, uh, of that decision in 56-57, um, a, a more pro-Chinese uh, leader, uh, Truong Chin, was replaced by Les Wan, who is a hardliner, very much committed to revolution in the South, uh, somebody who never got along with the Chinese, and the Chinese did not like him. Ho Chi Minh always had to mediate in the 60s between the Chinese and Les Wan. So uh, Vietnam, as it emerges in the 1960s under Les Wan, uh, is a very authoritarian state and one that is really following, actually, its own world revolutionary goals. So uh, in that way, the, the idea that uh, the American idea that you could um, entice or pressure Moscow and Beijing to put pressure on Hanoi is misguided. There was the impression that um, in Washington that you could play Moscow against Beijing in the context of the Sino-Soviet split. And in that way that the Sino-Soviet split might have provided an opening. But again here, uh, neither the Chinese nor the Soviets were willing to play along with that, along that game. Despite their internal conflicts, they were still committed to protecting a fraternal socialist state, i.e. Uh, North Vietnam which was under attack by, you know, imperialism, capitalism in, 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 the, in the Bolsheviks' parlance, right? So there was still enough uh, fraternal cooperation and commitments despite the Sino-Soviet split. Now, in 1969-1970, there were serious military clashes on the uh, Sino-Soviet border. Yes. At that time, was there, from what you're able to judge, serious consideration given in Moscow towards uh, military strikes on the PRC's um, nuclear facilities in Sienking. And um, related to that, was there ever a uh, démarche given to Washington about um, uh, the Soviets possibly uh, launching such an attack and or inviting the Americans to join in, because there's a number of American policymakers, including Kissinger and Nixon, um, post facto claim that there was such a démarche and that it was Washington's uh, uh, negative response to the same which 
help to prevent uh, a Soviet attack on Chinese nuclear facilities or China in general? I mean, first of all, there was one. Uh, I can confirm that. I found the documents. It was a, a mid-level Soviet embassy official uh, who very likely was a KGB official in Washington who met a mid-level American State Department official for lunch, I think in early September. I wrote about this in actually an article uh, around 10 years ago entitled Restoring Chaos to History. And this is about Sino-Soviet American relations in 69. So I can tell you just the story here. So there was this demarche. Uh, and where this Soviet official point blank asked, point blank asked the American official, you know, um, what are you going to say if we launch a preemptive strike against the Chinese nuclear weapons project in Lopno, in the west of China? Um, the Americans then came out with a public statement that uh, they were asked uh, that, or that they were, they did not say that they were asked, but they. Uh, revealed publicly that the Soviet Union was making these actually demarches with other countries without identifying themselves. So this happened. Um, now, this was never really a serious plan on the Soviet side. Um, this was a part of Soviet psychological warfare, which started uh, after the first Soviet uh, Sino-Soviet border clashes at the Usuri River in uh, Manchuria and Primorie um, um, in mid-March, uh, in early March and in mid-March 1969, uh, where up to, I think 800 people died in some of these clashes, mostly on the Chinese side. Uh, immediately, the Soviet Union started to threat with a nuclear strike against uh, uh, China via the, the, the Chinese language radio stations. Um, this was a way of essentially deterring China. There were the Chinese, the, the Soviets were afraid that radicalized Chinese youth would essentially march and invade Siberia. They had no clue how they would deal with that. They have this from memoirs, uh, I read in Russian. And so this is continued pressure on China to back off. And the demarche was designed, first of all, also to play on on Chinese minds, on the minds of the Chinese leadership. And I will talk, I will just tell you in a couple of minutes, it, it worked actually beautifully uh, for the Soviets. Um, but that particular demarche was also a way to figure out where do the Americans stand, because uh, the early Nixon administration was rethinking their policy towards China and uh, the, the Soviet Union. And this happened exactly in this period uh, of major a major rethink. And this demarche helped the Nixon administration to make actually that decision. And the decision was actually to have good relations with both, to try to have good relations with both China and the Soviet Union to play them against each other. And eventually, by late 69, the United States even decided they would continue to improve good uh, improving relations with China, but they wouldn't even tell the Soviets. So they played, a they played a psychological game with the Soviets after late 69. So this is about psychological warfare. Now I mentioned that um, there, uh, this is psychological warfare by the Soviet Union against the People's Republic of China, and it worked beautifully. China didn't really have a lot of foreign contacts at that time. It had destroyed its tools of making foreign policy more or less systematically since 1966 as a result of the Cultural Revolution. 
by alienating other countries, by reducing uh, embassy staff abroad, by terrorizing the embassies of other countries in Beijing. So this was a, a leadership, uh, a government that was very insulated in decision-making and in their knowledge about the outside world, uh, completely obsessed with the possibility of a Soviet nuclear strike. And this leads to a war psychosis. And uh, this war psychosis really increases over August and September. And this demarche is exactly an, an, a part of this Soviet uh, uh, psychological warfare. It increases to such a degree that the Chinese leadership does not expect a nuclear strike against their nuclear project. It actually expects a conventional military intervention in China. First, on, by October 1st, uh, Chinese National Day, which the Chinese leadership thought the Soviets would choose to humiliate actually China, and then later by, August, by October 20th. And the results in orders by the military leadership, by Lin Biao, to actually the civilian leadership, i.e. the party leadership, to disperse throughout the country in anticipation of the Soviet conventional attack so that they could escape arrest in Beijing by Soviet troops. Now, this sounds crazy, it is crazy, but it is the result of Soviet psychological warfare and this particular demarche uh, you mentioned was a part of your question is a part of that warfare. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, moving to the near and Middle East, um, one of your uh, arguments, uh, which had a novelty aspect for myself, was the fact that you um, state that the, the Cold War as such moves into the Middle East much later than either um, Europe or Asia, and that one of the aspects of uh, that delay was uh, the fact of British hegemony uh, in the near, near Middle East. And it is only when that hegemony um, starts to decline or decline precipitously that uh, the Soviets and the Americans uh, move into the region. Is that uh, the? Would you say that's a good synopsis of your argument? Yes, I think this uh, this really is, is is perfect actually synopsis, uh, and I'm glad that you picked up on that. And this argument is related to a sort of a larger point I try to make in this book. This is, we should also think about um, the Cold War as one meta or greater narrative of the 20th century that stands side by side with other narratives and that intersects with these narratives. And that is not the only or the dominant narrative. And one of these narratives is of post-decolonization. And this is why I also put Asia and the Middle East first, because these are ongoing, actually, processes after 1945. And we cannot understand the Cold War in East Asia or in Asia or in the Middle East if we don't take decolonization seriously as a precondition for what is happening in these areas. And um, 
to a certain degree, uh, after 45, Stalin wasn't really interested in the Middle East. And uh, the Americans were quite willing to let the British run the Middle East. The British, after all, were pretty close allies. Um, but it's the British, the widespread British collapse after the Swiss crisis that really undermines British credibility, particularly in the Levant and Egypt in, in the Middle East, but also in our, uh, further in Saudi Arabia and to a certain degree also in, in Iran, that opens up this region to the Cold War. That this, this, the British imperialism as a barrier for the, for the Cold War to, to enter, you know, really um, is removed by 56. But uh, the other thing is that, in fact, Middle Eastern countries are particularly adept also to keep the Cold War out. Saudi Arabia always wanted to keep actually foreign influence out, despite being in sort of a de facto alliance with the United States since the 1930s that was largely anti-British on the Saudi side. Um, but they also didn't want necessarily the Americans in. Uh, Egypt, to a certain degree, invites Soviet influence since 1955 as a result of its uh, increasing conflict with Israel. But really, Soviet influence wanes after 56. Um, the, the United Arab Republic, i.e. the merger of Egypt and Syria in 58, is an Egyptian attempt to exclude Soviet influence in Syria. Um, Nasser persecutes uh, Arab communists. They are thrown into the prison, and this leads them to a decline of sort and actually Chinese influence as well in the early 60s. And uh, it takes also a while after 56 for the United States to make a strategic commitment to Israel. Uh, Israel, in American eyes, uh, since 1947, was more actually a regional liability to the Americans than actually a strategic, a strategic asset in the Cold War, in the global Cold War. And this gradually changes after 56 until the mid-1960s. So it's this slow entrance of the Cold War into the Middle East as a result of the collapse of colonial or imperial structures that uh, makes the Middle East to one of the later areas, actually, of Cold War conflict and not into one of the original ones. So that would help to explain the what appeared probably at the time, and certainly in retrospect, the oddity of the anti-Baghdad pact grouping, uh, yeah. which included um, powers who we normally do not associate as acting in concert, uh, Israel, France, Egypt, the Soviet Union, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is again where with sort of two greater narratives intersect. Um, or three, in fact. I mean, one is the Korean War really stands at the beginning. You know, this idea that the Korean War, which is really a local conflict, right? Absolutely local, has no global meaning to, to the Koreans themselves, to the North Koreans, is in American eyes, you know, is the, the start of sort of the march of communism towards uh, uh, expansionism everywhere at the, at the, social, at the, at the communist periphery. And that leads to attempts to build up an alliance system in the Middle East. First, the, the, the MIDO, the Middle East Defense Organization, which is an early Eisenhower idea that doesn't fly, and then the Baghdad Pact, which is signed in, in 55. Now, um, there is an, an, a Middle Eastern anti-communism anyway. 
um, particular Jordan and Iraq, run by the Hashemites, fraternal kingdoms, are anti-communist. Turkey is anti-communist. Iran of the 53 is strongly anti-communist. Um, so there is a basis on which you can buy, uh, build actually this kind of anti-Soviet alliance, the Baghdad Pact. But there are also uh, states like Nasser, or, uh, like Nasser's Egypt or Saudi Arabia, who dislike this idea, say, well, this is actually simply a continuation of British imperialism. You are going to lose influence at the Suez Canal anyway, uh, according to the 54 um, agreement by 56, the, the, the British have to be out. What you do try to do now, try to replace this influence through this supposedly anti-communist alliance. And, you know, anti-communism is really just fake. Uh, the Soviets don't really have any interest. And I think Nasser was right uh, in 53, 54, 55. So the Arabia, as I said, was anyway not interested to have any foreign non-Arab influence in the Arab world. And you have Israel, you know, Israel who sees this Baghdad pact not necessarily as an anti-Soviet um, uh, pact, but in fact as an anti-Israeli uh, organization. There is in fact an, an Asian and uh, an Asian collective, uh, sorry, a Middle Eastern collective security treaty signed in June 1950. That was a very uh, completely dif uh, dysfunctional, but it was an anti-Israeli defense pact, an Arab pact. And Israel sees, of course, the Baghdad Pact in these terms. So there is really, there are different understandings of what the Baghdad Pact is. The members, the members, thinks, the members think it's anti-Soviet. Uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia think it's an imperialist ploy, and Israel thinks it's anti-Israeli, right? And this it sets then the stage, in fact, towards the Suez Crisis. Because remember that the, the border conflicts at the Gaza Strip in February 1955 um, are planned by Israel to deter Egypt from actually joining the Baghdad Pact because Israel feared that Nasser would join an anti-Israeli Baghdad Pact. But Nasser himself rejected the Baghdad Pact because he didn't believe in its anti-Soviet meaning. So there was, in fact, a, 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 a congruence of interest, but that still led to conflict and then set the stage, in fact, to, uh, one of the stages of the Suez crisis. Now, you write that uh, British influence had collapsed everywhere in the Middle East after 1956 in the Suez crisis. Wouldn't it be more uh, accurate to say that collapse occurs after the the overthrow of the Hashemite regime in Iraq uh, in 1958? Um, I think, you know, in the book, I might have phrased it, you know, as an immediate collapse, you know, and I probably, you know, in retrospect, would phrase this more carefully. Um, I think it's a collapse of uh, in 56 with the, the British, Franco-British intervention at Suez. Uh, it's a, a collapse of credibility. Um, this has immediate uh, results that Jordan essentially abrogates, you know, uh, the British military agreements and sort of British military advisors have to leave. Egypt abrogates the 54 Suez Canal uh, Agreement that al would allow actually Great Britain to return militarily to protect the Suez Canal in, in times of crisis. Um, it definitely creates in, in Iraq, uh, it helps to create an anti-Hashemite uh, um, 
movement that then leads to the removal of the Hashemite uh, uh, kingdom in, in the 58 revolution. This is, happens also in the context, of course, of the merger of Egypt and, and Syria. So um, I think these are the long, the, the, the middle and long-term consequences of 56. Of course, Great Britain continues to have influence in uh, the Gulf of, uh, um, of Persia, Aden, but you know even there, uh, 56 creates conditions which lead to the independence of uh, of these what we now know of the smaller uh, Arab states like Kuwait and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates and you know also Yemen, which continues to be a problem. Why did the Soviet Union, the spring of 1967, tell its Arab clients that Israel was going to attack them? Was this a deliberate error or 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 not? Well, this is, uh, you know, this story that vexes actually most uh, historians, I think, because it, it is really an old story. It is the Soviet Union warning, I think it's late April, early May, if I remember correctly, warning the Egyptians that the Israelis are, or Israel is actually getting ready to attack Syria. Um, it's really odd, right? Because it, in retrospect, when you look at the context, this warning really doesn't make sense. Because Israel primarily was concerned with Egypt. Because Egypt, the problem was Egypt for Israel and Egypt's refusal to let actually Israel's, Israel-bound ships pass through the Suez Canal and pass through the Strait of, uh, of uh, through the Gulf of Aqaba, right? So it essentially strangled access, maritime access, to Israel from the Indian Ocean. So um, the warning really makes no sense uh, when you look at it as a historian, but you still have to make sense of it, right? That's your task as a historian. Why would the Soviets do this? Now, uh, some historians have argued this is essentially the Soviet Union trying to incite, actually, um, Arab states to go to war against Israel. And this is the stream of this argument is, well, that in fact, Israel, the June war in 67 is a preemptive war by Israel against actually a threat, an Arab threat, and the Soviet Union was, had been building up this threat all along. I don't necessarily agree with this. Uh, my sense is that this is a Syrian disinformation campaign, and the, the basically what Syria wants, Syria since the collapse of the United Arab Republic 61 is in a struggle with Egypt about leadership of the Arab world. But it realizes that it's too weak militarily uh, to lead the Arab world. So it tries to strong arm Egypt into doing its bidding. And one way to do this is actually to become more anti-Israel than Nasser. And this is why Syria also spouts continuously since 64 these ideas, we have to remove Israel, we have to wipe it off the map. This is a Syrian propaganda claim. And it's in its context, as you know, the conflict with Israel since 66 is heating up for a variety of reasons, that Syria is essentially planting this canar in the minds of the Soviets. And they don't call the bluff, they believe it, and they pass it on to Nasser. Nasser at that time, as he rhetorically now matches Syrian uh, war propaganda, um, is about to uh, throw out the United Nations Expeditionary Force of Sinai, 
is uh, uh, tightening the blockade in Aqaba and Suez against Israel. And uh, this is, in my view, a Syrian ploy to force the Egyptian hand. The Soviets realized this after 10 days, and they changed track, and they basically sent messages as well, you know, we are interested in keeping the peace, right? By the way, don't take this as a, uh, as a, as an invitation to go to war. But by then, so much has changed in the dynamics, in the Israeli Arab dynamics, that really, it's, in retrospect, it looks to me almost unavoidable that by mid-May that this war is going to come. Now, the question then is, what is Israel's plan? So, the civilian government uh, under Eshkol is rather careful until late May. It's mostly the military, the, the army that for 10 years had planned actually a repetition of the 56 campaign, uh, who is now, they are pushing now the civilian government to, to that war. In that way, that, that Soviet warning, uh, which is a Syrian canar, uh, and the Soviets deeply regret this very quickly, you know, has a, has a catalytic, has is a sort of, the function is a catalyst in, in the crisis that is about to come by June. In retrospect, who would you uh, state uh, or say would be more at fault in the failure of a um, serious move towards peace in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, Israel or the Arab states? Um, you know, this, I expected that this question would come after having published this book. Now, let me sort of, I'm not comfortable with the idea of fault or responsibility. And it's also not my uh, my task as a historian to sort of say 70% and 30% or something like that. Um, I think um, all sides contributed to, let's say, the lack of a compromise peace. You can always, I mean, it looks like, you know, looking back now, that Israel is getting what it wants anyway. They're basically sitting out the problem. And uh, the problem for them is, well, we want to get the Palestinians out of, the, of Palestine ultimately, right? And, uh, you know, by basically being committed to, to that, you will get the peace, but it's a peace imposed by Israel. Um, if, however, you think about peace after 67, you would think about some form of a compromise peace in which the Arab states recognize diplomatically Israel. Uh, they end the state of war. And Israel makes uh, makes concessions, and the concessions is withdrawal from the Sinai, from Gaza, from the West Bank, maybe not from East Jerusalem, uh, uh, maybe, maybe not, right? But there's some form of both sides give and take. Um, in a give and take relationship, somebody has to start giving. And uh, usually it's useful for the victor in a conflict to show magnanimity and to actually do that first step and not continue to humiliate the other side. So it would have been useful, I think, in retrospect for Israel to at least signal that it's interested in uh, in some form of a compromise and it's willing, you know, to, to start. And then the, 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 the Arab side had to match and make a counter-compromise and then Israel would match and make another compromise. So it was a, give, a real give and take. Neither side was willing to start with giving. All sides first wanted to take the compromise from the other side. And so it's this situation where neither side can make a compromise for mostly domestic reasons. 
and then leads to a perpetuation actually of the situation and now ultimately to an, an Israel imposed Israeli peace almost 50 or more than 50 years later now in your um, uh, account of black September 1970 uh, unlike many American accounts I'm thinking particular volume one of his memoirs Henry Kissinger where he devotes an entire chapter to Black September, in essence arguing that it was via uh, American and Israeli actions and signalings that Hussein was able to, um, uh, in essence, defeat the Palestinians in Jordan who were attempting a, a uh, overthrow of his regime. In your account, there is no American role, as far as I seem to remember, or Israeli role in that crisis. How do you, how do you explain uh, the difference between these American accounts, it's not just Kissinger's, and your own? I mean, first of all, um, you know, the American accounts, and I think this is um, sort of my general beef I had with many of these accounts, they're so American-centric. They look at American actually actions and they see the United States as the center of the world. By the way, virtually all archives you are going to visit, whether it's the East German archives or the Bulgarian archives, there's always a tendency of these governments to see themselves as the center of the world. That's just an intrinsic, actually, quality of the sources. Um, um, they never see themselves necessarily as actually, you know, sort of just one of the smaller powers. Um, Kissinger is also somebody uh, who believes that the United States is running the world. And managing the world, and so this is very it comes through his uh, um, memoirs very clearly. I'm not a big fan of the memoirs. I think actually he misstates often, uh, or he misremembers willfully or unconsciously what was really happening. Now, um, second thing is remember what this book is about. This book is really about a returning agency to where, in my view, it belongs, and that's to the small and to the middle powers. That doesn't mean that the superpowers had no agency. But the question is, you know, did they have influence? Uh, and I always, uh, I was, the example I usually bring, the two examples, the United States had the largest amount of uh, nuclear warheads in the 1970s, and they still lost the war in Vietnam. The Soviets had the largest number of nuclear missiles in the 1980s, and the Soviet Union still lost actually the war in Afghanistan. So military power doesn't necessarily influence into uh, necessarily lead to a political influence. This now, let me return to Black September. Now there's no doubt that the, the superpowers did uh, did um, take actions that enabled Jordan to suppress to address actually the, the, the challenge to to uh, uh, royal rule. That was basically um, the Americans leaned on the Israelis, don't do anything, and the Soviets leaned on the Iraqis and the Syrians, you're not going to intervene in, in Jordan on the side of the Palestinians. So there is a very clearly superpower co uh, cooperation. But this is really, you know, sort of at the periphery of the crisis. The crisis is a, is a Palestinian and a Jordanian crisis. And it's about and that develops over the 1970s. It is to a certain degree related to the Rogers plan, and to uh, Nasser's and Hussein's and uh, Golda Meir's acceptance of that plan that then sparks actually the civil war. 
But ultimately, it's Jordan and the Arab League, particularly Nasser, that addresses the issue in, August, in, in September, throughout September, and ultimately uh, Nasser dies as a result of that crisis. He suffers yet another heart attack and passes away on September 28th, just after he mediated between uh, Arafat and Hussein. So I really, it is, when you look at this at, from the ground, what is happening in Jordan, not from Washington and Moscow and Tel Aviv, this is very much actually a Jordanian crisis and then an Arab League crisis. And this is why I don't see in American and Israeli influence as described by Kiss and Shadat Central. How do you explain the um, um, non-response of uh, Soviet Sky of Lost to uh, Sadat's very, I suppose, by mid-early to... Um, uh, late 1971, early 1972, rather overt signals that he was dissatisfied with Soviet backing and he was willing at that point to entertain American offers to, in essence, change sides, uh, alignments. Why did uh, Moskva not react to these signals by um, offering something that Sadat would want in order to remain on uh, the Soviet side? Um, now, first of all, let's start with Egypt. Um, Egypt, already after the June War, 67, realized that the real powerful country, that the, the real superpower is the United States, not the Soviet Union. And that any solution of the Arab-Israeli conflict probably has to go through Washington and will not go through Moscow. But um, the June War had to a certain degree more foreclosed uh, that option. That changes when Nasser dies. Uh, Israel did not trust Nasser. Israel did not sh shed even crocodile tears when he died. And the announcement came actually on Yom Kippur in 1970. Uh, by, by coincidence, uh, there was actually quite some relief. Um, Sadat has to a certain degree a clean slate. And he, in his first interview with uh, an, an American representative who comes to, to Nasser's uh, funeral, uh, on October 2nd, he more or less clearly says that we want to, we have disagreements, but we would like to reestablish relations and this can be a fruitful relationship. So the signals come immediately. Um, now there are two things. Um, why does Washington, why does Moscow not react, you know, um, and why does Washington not react once uh, Egypt kicks out uh, sort specialists in mid-1972? Now, um, Moscow also realizes that it has, a, it has limited influence in the Middle East. It's also in a really bad diplomatic situation. It can never be a mediator, because the reality is it had broken relations with Israel in 67 and barely had any relations with Israel until, in fact, 1990, 1990 or 1991. Um, uh, I have to check on that. So it wasn't in a position. For the Soviets, um, they wanted to stay, they wanted to maintain influence in the Middle East, but not to such a degree that they would essentially create another 1967. So yes, you give weapons to the Egyptians, but you don't give so much, so many weapons that they can go after Israel. So it must certainly, let's keep actually the Israeli-Arab conflict frozen. Let's do everything that nothing happens, right? So it was not a very constructive uh, um, uh, policy. 
Sadat starts to play on the Soviets uh, and say, look, you, I need more weapons. Uh, I need to catch up with the Israelis. They get American weapons. And if you don't give us anything, we will switch sides. Uh, the Soviets, I think, never really thought that Sadat would switch sides. Uh, they were quite surprised when he eventually uh, did um, kick out Soviet specialists in mid-1972, military specialists. Another question is, why did the Americans not react to that? Um, the Americans had goaded uh, Nassant and Sadat, with particular Sadat, for a couple of months, if not years, by mid-72, saying, look, if you kick out actually the Soviets, you know, we are willing to work with you and um, we are going to help. Now, first of all, American policy was always primarily about getting the Soviets out of the Middle East, and it was not prim primarily about actually solving the, the Arab-Israel conflict. Um, that was, and Bill Quant writes this quite clearly in his memoirs, the peace process, this was about the process, it was not about the solution. Um, also, think about the timing when this comes in mid-1972. This was a presidential election year. Uh, Nixon, at that time, it wasn't clear that he would win. Uh, this becomes clear in August, September. But uh, he wasn't willing to burn his fingers. He was willing, actually, to uh, ride on the successes he had. The visit to, to Beijing in February, the visit to Moscow in, in May. And he was still dealing with a major problem. And that was actually the Vietnam War, the Easter Offensive. So when, you know, the, the signal came from Sadat, we are kicking out the military specialists in July 1972, it really came at the wrong moment uh, in Washington. And the interesting thing is when you look at American documents, the Americans very quickly review, you know, are we actually ready? They suddenly realize that they have no policy ready. They have never thought about what they really would do once Sadat would actually kick out the, uh, the Soviets. And that leads then to the frustration on Sadat's side. He tries to revert back and you know, rekindle the relationship with the Soviets by October, November, but then the Soviets don't want to do it. They, they play hardball. And that leads then to his decision, really, to go to, the, uh, to war against Israel, which happens in October 73. But he says, we have to plan now. We have to plan extremely well. We are not going to do 56 and 67. We are completely unprepared. So to a certain degree, this... The, the Soviet stalling and the American non-reaction does create a situation in which you know, 73 the October War happens. Now, uh, going back to uh, Europe, uh, would you agree with uh, Alan Milward's argument that economically speaking, it was not the Marshall Plan as such, but the economic boom uh, generated by the Korean War which powered the long-term economic recovery in Western Europe beginning in the early 1950s? Um, let's start with the Korean War. I think the Korean War is less important in Europe. It's very crucial for Japan. It actually helps Japan. There's a massive influx of American economic and military aid in the context of the American uh, effort in Korea after summer 1950. Um, I Korea has Korea leads to a very short actual recession in the United States and also in, in, in Europe, if I remember correctly. So the larger question here is to what degree um, is West European recover, recovery the result of an outside American stimulus or Cold War stimulus, or to what degree it's the result actually of internal policies? 
And that leads to what degree is the Marshall Plan really economically significant? Now, I have sort of three answers to this, um, to this question. Look at Great Britain. Great Britain got the largest, actually, share of Marshall Plan aid. But it was actually performing the poorest of all um, West European economies way into the 1960s. So that seems to me that there, there is no connect between the Marshall Plan and the impact and what is happening in Great Britain. And then what the question and why is maybe this is related to actually British domestic economic policy making and decision making. And that's sort of my argument also that a lot of the recovery is in, in Europe is homemade. It's by really good decision making done in some of these countries. And one is West Germany, the other one Italy, the economic miracles. France was also an underperformer until the 1960s and it becomes an, an, an overperformer, largely because it's engaged in a long-term restructuring of its economy from a more liberal, privatized economy to a more state-guided one, uh, for which then France becomes, you know, very famous in the 60s and 70s. So again, you know, in, maybe it's domestic politics. Now, what's the role of the Marshall Plan? Um, the Marshall Plan, for me, it is a very important American stimulus, but it's one more at the psychological level. It indicates to the Europeans, we Americans, we are going to make a commitment to you now. It's, and it's this, we give you now a context that provides you with guidance and direction. We are not going to let you actually hang and be in limbo as we have for two years since the end of the war. Now you know what to do. And in that way, the plan is really has this psychological effect. It has it provides also uh, um, you know, economic aid. But what is much more important in this context is not really economic aid. It's also the opening of the American market where European economies can now export. The Marshall Plan provides aid, allows Europeans to keep their tariff barriers up. So American exports are included. And it opens, it throws the, the doors open to the American market so that European economies can export. So, and uh, at the same time, the Americans give really good advice uh, in, in view of, you know, integrating European economies and strengthening them, you know, to withstand actually solid threat. Um, there's one example I want to give you, you know, that sort of undermines this Marshall Plan uh, uh, argument. There's no doubt that West Germany, or what would become West Germany after, 19, after mid-1945, was suffering actually from an economic downturn. Major crisis, 45, 46, 47. Usually the argument is that this is the result of the strategic bonding. But really in 1945, uh, West Germany's industrial capability was roughly the one from 1937. So what was destroyed equals what Hitler had built up in view of going to war in 39, 40, um, One of the reasons why uh, West Germany was in fact in suffering major economic problems is the occupation zones that hermetically created zones in which cross-economic actually interaction wasn't possible anymore. And so grown supply networks collapsed and once uh, the Americans and the British and the French realized that, and this is why they moved to the buy zone and the try zone, you know, many of these barriers uh, essentially disappeared. 
And so the, the economic miracle in West Germany really starts before even the Marshall Plan is, uh, is announced and implemented. So there are structural and domestic uh, reasons why there's an economic recovery. And I think the Marshall Plan is just one of many, uh, uh, many factors in this story. I don't see necessarily the Korean War as being relevant uh, to, to that story in Europe. Was the Stalin note of 1952 a serious effort to end the division of Germany, uh, as per the Steininger book on the subject, or was it merely an attempt to derail German rearmament? Um, my sense is it was the second. Um, now, Stalin had always disclaimed that he wants a united and neutral and particular demilitarized Germany, right? This is continuity since 1944-1945. Of course, the whole idea is uh, it's a weak Germany which he ultimately can control, right? Subvert and control. So, um, even after the foundation of the two Germanys in 49, first the Western Federal Republic and then the East German, German Democratic Republic, there was this idea that East Germany is a provisorium, right? A provisional, a tentative solution, and that it will ultimately lead to a unification under socialist, actually, uh, leadership. So in this context, uh, uh, this, this note perfectly fits into these long-term plans. So um, it happens at a crucial moment in, West, uh, in Western negotiations about the European defense community, a French idea to allow West Germany to rearm in an integrated West European army that then would be a, be a part of NATO, the so-called Plaven plan of the fall of 1950. These were very difficult uh, negotiations. And it's really an attempt by Stalin to derail these, uh, these negotiations. It's the start, actually, of a campaign which continues. Uh, Poland in 53, you know, addresses actually West European NATO members, all former victims of, of, of uh, Hitler's aggression, you know, and say we need actually a pan-European, you know, collective security treaty. You know, we can't allow the German fascists to be rearmed. This continues then with, uh, with a proposal in, in November 1954 of a pan-European collective security structure in which the Americans would actually be denied participation, but strangely, the communist China would be part of it. So this is a, a continuous attempt by Stalin to exclude, first of all, American influence and to keep Germany down in order to take it over in the long term. So in that way, this is not a serious actually note. Um, this is really about trying to spoil American plans of uh, creating a a sort of independent and partially armed West Germany that is still controlled by NATO. Would it on the whole be correct to say that you are not particularly impressed with uh, de Gaulle's foreign policy, uh, certainly not as much as uh, some scholars like Julian Jackson are? Yeah, uh, I mean, the goal is this fascinating personality, right? I mean, you just look at the picture and you're already fascinated, right? I mean, he is this unusual uh, two-meter man, uh, six feet, you know, and a half, I think. Uh, he is, um, he has this kind of natural arrogance, you know, I'm, I'm the king, uh, I'm the king of Europe, right? 
So he's fascinated, and he fascinates biographers, I understand, and you're sort of taken in by him, I understand that too. I'm less impressed by De Gaulle. I'm very much impressed by post-war France, uh, how a humiliated and defeated nation reemerges and becomes sort of, to a certain degree, by accident, a member of the UN Security Council and then a leader of West European integration and then a technological and political leader in the 60s and 70s, right? But much of these very fundamental uh, decisions that made France into what it would be in the 60s and 70s are not decisions made by the Gaulle. They were made partially in Washington and they were made by governments between 1946 and 1958, when de Gaulle actually was not in power, when he was in self-imposed internal exile in his little farm uh, on the countryside in France. So um, de Gaulle, to a certain degree, could really inherit many good decisions made between 46 and 58, particularly in restructuring of the economy, uh, investments into high technology uh, in the civilian and the military uh, uh, sphere. And he could run with them. He also gambled some of them away. So this is why I'm less less impressed by him. I think uh, he actually his ten this decade in power from you know mid sixty fifty eight to I think April sixty nine if I remember correctly um, is one you know of mixed success. Uh, he didn't really reestablish France as this equal to the Soviet Union, the United States. This was also a megalomaniac dream. He established France, uh, he, he took over France that was already quite well established as a leader of Europe. But France would never ever become a global power again. It was just not structural in the cards. Why did Brezhnev et Ali, the Soviet leadership, refuse the request, uh, more than one, of the Polish Communist Party to uh, militarily intervene in Poland? in order to deal with Solar Derenosh in 1980-81? Well, we do have now the evidence that uh, Jaruzelski, in the fall of uh, 81, repeatedly asked for Soviet intervention, uh, and the Soviets said no. And the interesting thing is that in his memoirs he writes that the Soviets wanted to intervene, but he prevented it, and he, de he decided he prevented an impending Soviet intervention by imposing martial law. That's, of course, false. He more or less was forced by the Soviets uh, to deal with the problem by himself. Now, um, just sort of, let's look at the context. The Soviet Union had intervened militarily in uh, East Berlin in 53, in Hungary in 56, in Czechoslovakia in 68, in Afghanistan in 79. Um, Andropov writes, tells uh, one of his, uh, and he was involved in every single decision, I think except in 53, in 56, 68, and 79, he was involved in making the decision to intervene, and he was the one guy who was, was for intervention. But in the fall of 81, he's actually against intervention in Poland. And he says something, and said the quota of interventions is full. So there is an, there's probably an, an insight that the Soviet Union cannot afford any longer to intervene. And, and let's think this through. Um, the Soviet Union had intervened in 79 in Afghanistan and was convinced it was a cakewalk in and out. And already after two months, Andropov tells the East Germans in early 1980, that's going to be a long-term problem. 
So uh, they miscalculated. So there is probably an insight that going into Poland is not going to go going in and out. We are going to go in and we are going to have to deal with these problems. And do we really have the resources to do that? No. Uh, the Soviet Union was suffering the third of consecutive uh, failed harvests. It had uh, accumulated huge debt uh, outside in the non-socialist world. It was one of the largest debt holders at that time. Um, it uh, it uh, also it, it had an early on made the decision, you know, we can live with sort of a non-communist government in Poland, a Solidarność government. Poland is not a frontline state, unlike East Germany 53, Czechoslovakia 68, Hungary 56. As long as we can keep our military and strategic prerogatives, i.e., unhindered access to our positions in East Germany, we can sort of deal with a Solidarność government. So there was a clear insight, you know, we can't really afford to intervene. And if Jaroselski uh, wants to impose martial law, let him do, that's fine with us. Um, we give some economic aid, uh, but then Jaroselski has to, do, uh, to deal with the issue. And Jaroselski did impose actually martial law, and he did so saying, you know, I do this to overcome the crisis of mistrust and to restore trust. So he really thought that this is a solution. But it shows also that there was an, um, unlike in Moscow, uh, there's an insight that intervening will create more problems. Warsaw, Jaroselsky thought, you know, in, martial law will actually resolve the crisis of distrust in society. Of course, it deepened this crisis. It doesn't, didn't resolve anything. Um, so, uh, ultimately, uh, Brezhnev, under advice from people like uh, Andropov and actually Suslov, decided actually not to intervene because it would create greater problems than, the, than it would solve. Can you elaborate a little bit when you state that the Cold War was, in essence, an endurance race and Soyuz simply ran out of steam? Yeah. Um, this goes back to kind of the critique I have of uh, a triumph triumphalist interpretation, uh, Reagan, who single-handedly ended the Cold War by standing up to the Soviets. Uh, first of all, he didn't. He was out of, of power when the Cold War ended in '89. Um, but it's again in an American-centric interpretation, which increasingly sort of caused problems, interpretative problems for me. Now, ultimately, this is the Soviet Union is, as I write at the beginning of the of the book, sees itself as a challenger to the capitalist imperialist bourgeois world, right? Since 1970. So, and since Lenin, the idea is in the long term, we are on the right side of history. So there was always this idea, this is a long-term endurance race, right? This was inbuilt in, in, in the genetics of the Soviet state. Um, ultimately, the Soviet Union could not compete economically. Um, the Soviet economy and, you know, its, it's larger economy, socialist economy, really reaches a peak in the 1960s and then goes into decline. And this is very perceptible by the Soviets. They realize that there's a problem. They don't know how to solve the problem, but they realize there's not a problem. They try several times, but it's very clear over the 70s that the socialist world market is de facto actually collapsing, not working and collapsing. And the Soviet Union, economically at home, um, really can't keep up anymore. 
it's it's not standing still. It's actually objectively getting worse by the late 70s, early 80s. And the Soviet citizens, we, you know, clearly perceives this, and this leads to widespread cynicism among the Soviet population. So in that way, economically, you know, um, the Soviet Union was just not able to to keep, uh, to stay in the race, particularly. For a while, they thought they could do that. They look at the West in the 70s, at the crisis in the West as a result of the oil shocks and the structural changes that the West is undergoing in the wake of the, Bretton Woods, of the collapse of Bretton Woods in 71. But um, there is a rebound in the West you know, during the 1980s, largely as a result of deregulation and neoliberalism. There's an aggregate growth. I'm not saying that this is substantial growth that where everybody can benefit. But if you are in Moscow and you look at Washington, you see that Washington is economically rebounding while you are declining in the 1980s. The other reason is that by the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, the Sovietians several times sort of looks at the world and says, well, how are our investments you know, into the world actually working? And all of those that seem to have worked out have defected. China. Yugoslavia, you know, all of those, you know, states that might have been sympathetic, you know, to the Soviet Union, they sort of turn away. India is turning away, right? And the only assets that the Soviet Union has, like Cuba, Vietnam, Afghanistan, East Europe, North Korea, and, you know, Syria, you know, ultimately assets that are really liabilities. So the long-term investments made in the version of years, really turned out to be in false investments, investments that went belly up. And in that way, looking at this, once Gorbachev comes into power, and he's still committed to make these things, these things work, but by 1988, he realizes that ultimately the Soviet project is unreformable. And this is when he actually gives up uh, on the pretense that the Soviet Union could participate in this continued race and essentially you know, decides to drop out. My last question is, if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Um, if you don't like you know, general interpretations of history, you know, trust, that, trust your distrust and your discomfort, dig. Uh, and, you know, be open to be surprised, you know, what you find and try to make sense. Don't don't look for conspiracy theories, of course, but try to look sense. And uh, what you take away is that the world is more complicated than you expect, but it's also more fascinating in the process. On that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Luthi, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for, thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Luthi. Thank you for having me.